So I'm calling the message When Rocks Fly. You'll see why in a moment. But um, again, some of us recall that uh, Paul and Barnabas had been commissioned when they were in the church in Antioch. The larger Antioch was Antioch of Syria. Uh, that had been the first church really to have a large Gentile community. To everybody's surprise, there was a lot of receptivity to the message of Jesus that had broken out in this, what had been at that time the third largest city in the Roman Empire. Paul and Barnabas and another member, John Mark, ends up going to Cyprus. We talked about that. They had this amazing encounter. Um, um, ultimately, the Roman governor, Sergius Paulus, opens up his heart to the Lord. It's an amazing thing that happens. They decide, what are we going to do next? Paul makes the decision, feels like the Lord is leading them to go up into what they called Asia Minor. We, it's modern-day Turkey. Uh, they, they start going to places where the message of Jesus has never, ever been taken. At first, they go to the port city of Perga. You can see where they go up. They go up to a different Antioch, smaller one. They have some mixed results. Uh, initially, people are very interested in at least hearing them out. Um, actually, there were people they go to the, the first place they would usually go is to the synagogue, and they would talk to the community there. They were Jews. Uh, they talked to their brethren. They talked to the Gentiles who would attach themselves to the synagogues and, because they believed in, in God. And then they would also share the message in the marketplace. And they met with a lot of receptivity, but there was also resistance. And, and, and actually, in Antioch, they, they kind of got chased out of town. They go up to Iconium. Same thing kind of happens. They actually get run out of town, this time by a mob with rocks being thrown at them on the way out. They head over, head down to Lystra. That's where we picked up. In Lystra, they walk past a very um, impressive temple um, built in honor of the god Zeus and Hermes and, and just the, the whole, at least that was the lore that was connected to it. They share about Jesus. They have a, a lot of people who are interested in what they're saying. And then something happened. And, and this is what we, we put in. It's in Acts 14, verse 8. It's in the handout right here. We, we talked about how Paul was sharing and, and how he was preaching this message of Jesus, sharing probably his story and about the power of Christ and what God can do. And, and then he had one of those moments where he felt the Holy Spirit come over him. It says that when, verse 8, while they were at Lystra, Paul and Barnabas came upon a man with crippled feet. He had been that way from birth, so he had never walked, and he was actually sitting. But he was listening very intently to what was being said, so intently that it caught Paul. Paul and him actually looked at each other, but Paul felt an impression. It was very similar to what he had felt earlier when he had this kind of um, confrontation spiritually with the false prophet on the island of Cyprus, and the Lord had done something pretty potent and powerful. And so he was starting to get the sense that there are these moments where if I give voice to the Spirit, God will do something remar remarkable, almost miraculous. In this case, it was. Um, you see what it says here, that as, he, as this man was listening to Paul, Paul was preaching, that eventually Paul just stopped and he, and he, and he looked at him he, he, and he just went with it. Because it says he realized he had faith to be healed and something inside of him said, speak to this man. And so Paul did it. And uh, he said to him, and it says with a loud voice, stand up. And then to everybody's surprise, the man, and including, he didn't even think about it. He just stood up. And then the whole thing breaks loose. We talked about what happened. Everything goes wild. People can't believe it. He can, he's walking around. Paul and Barnabas are even themselves amazed. Everybody's amazed at what's happening. And then all of a sudden, people just start yelling at one another, talking back and forth. You're seeing hand move. People start running to get the, to the other part of the town. They went to go get the high priest, and they were going to bring out a processional to create offerings for Paul and Barnabas. And again, Paul and Barnabas, they speak Greek which was kind of like the English of their day. It was commonly understood. But the people, when they broke out in this kind of just, you know, 
uh, you know, I guess we would call it just melee of, of people going back and forth and talking about what was happening and what they should do and who these men were. And they realized there was a dialect they didn't understand. But by the time they see the priest coming and he's got goat, uh, bulls and, and, and uh, wreaths of flowers that are a whole procession coming in. And, and, and finally, they, get, they, they figure out what's actually happening. And we're told here what was happening was they were going to make an offering to Paul and Barnabas because they believed that they, had, they were gods in human form. Was, they actually felt that they were Zeus and Hermes. And they called Barnabas Zeus because he was the older and didn't say anything. And they called Paul Hermes his spokesman because he was doing all the talking and was a little bit younger. And so that was what they did. But they, they bring this, this procession to him. Paul and Barnabas realize what's going on. Uh, they couldn't figure out what, what, what everybody was so, you know, just sort of charged up about. It dawns on them that what's happening is that they're about to be worshipped as gods. And, of course, that was the very opposite thing of what they had come to. It says here that when Paul and Barnabas, look at verse 14. It says, when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard what was happening, they tore their clothing in dismay, which was like a, a, a custom of their people from ancient times to when they heard, when they heard blasphemy or something that was just clearly wrong being attributed to a person that should only be given to God. They tore their clothes. They tore their clothes. They said, brethren, no, 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 no. They tried to get the people to pay attention. Look, we are, we are, we are human beings. We are, remember we talked about, we're just flesh and blood. We're not gods. We, we, we're here to tell you about God. We're just heralds. We're messengers. We've come to give you a message. He says, we've give, come to give you the message of the good news. That 15th verse, you see, this is what we do. Friends, friends. We have come to bring the good news that you should turn. This is the very opposite of what we want. We want you to turn away from these things, these, these futile things, these things that aren't even real. And we want, we're asking you to consider turning to the one living God, says here, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. And he says, and Paul says, in the past, you know, God, there was, he permitted all the nations to kind of go their own ways, but he's never left. And think about it, without an evidence of himself and his goodness, there's always been a trace of him everywhere in all, all of creation. And we're here to tell you about this God who has shown up. He gave him his own self, and he was talking, they're talking about Jesus. And as this is happening, the people are going, we still want to offer to you, you know? We still want to sacrifice. We still think you're gods. And this was a real problem. And it was all going down, and it was the, everything was about, you know, the, the bulls were about to be slain, and, and uh, everything was about to happen, and then something occurs that disrupts the entire event. And if you were here last week, you remember that I said, something occurs that Paul will look back on as one of the most intense, intensely traumatic moments of his life. He had no idea of how this day was actually going to go. While he's trying to settle the crowd down and explain to them that they're not gods, they're just human beings bringing a message of Jesus, a message from God, uh, this other group of people, we're told leaders and men from the towns of Antioch and Iconium, make their way in right about the same time while this is all happening. And they, they were there to challenge Paul and Barnabas Remember, they were the ones that had chased, these groups had chased these guys out of town. And um, now they were coming in. Look what it says. It says that then some of the Jews, some of the leaders, again, Paul and Barnabas are Jewish themselves, arrived from Antioch and Iconium, and they begin to argue with Paul. 
And they begin to say that these guys are frauds, these guys are fakes, they're trying to deceive you, they're not who they say they are, they're not. And eventually the crowd started to turn against Paul. And Paul must have been more, and Barnabas, but Paul must have been more vociferous and more challenging, which we know he was. And evidently, and again, the Bible says it with such simplicity that we're tempted, oh, just to kind of walk right, oh yeah, you just kind of read it through, and it's just that, yeah, they stoned Paul and then dragged him out of the town thinking he was dead. But you understand what was happening. Here he is, they're arguing. All of a sudden, I don't know how it begins, but someone, 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 and that's how it usually works, somebody picked up a rock. While he was talking and arguing back and forth, someone threw it at him, and it hit him. Then a couple more people started doing it. Before long, he's just being pelted with rocks. And again, if Barnabas is standing there, we're told that he wasn't injured. Barnabas is probably, don't, don't, no, no. But he just can't do anything, because all of a sudden, Paul's getting hit from every direction. And we can imagine, because when you're talking about getting hit with rocks and stones like that, I mean, it, was, it, could, it could be lethal. And uh, he, he, no doubt, was getting gashed. He was getting hit. Finally, he, I have no question that he staggered to a point where he, he probably couldn't even stand anymore. And he's getting pummeled. He's getting pummeled from every side. And, as, and you know how it gets when people get into this frenzy. They're all going at it. And it's just throwing at him. And finally, one of them hits him, evidently, so hard that it, no, it knocks him to the ground. And he's basically unconscious on the ground. That They don't even know. They think he's dead. He gets, I imagine just a few more thrown at him. By the time, but no one can do anything about it. The Roman guards haven't arrived yet. And what happens is they take Paul. We're told here it says that they dragged him out of town. So they think he's dead. They take him, and they're the picture of it is just dragging his body out, and they throw him outside the town. And the believers cautiously come around him to see what has happened. And, 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 to, and they're shocked because it says, but as they gathered around him, that he, 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 he woke up. I don't know how that would have been, but he kind of started moving. He kind of comes to his senses a little bit. And to everybody's surprise, the former Pharisee gets up. He's alive. He's bloody. He's beaten up. But he staggers. We're told that he staggers back. In, because that's, by this point, the Romans had restored the order in the town. And everybody had scattered like they do. And so he's, he himself staggers back into town. And we're told that the next day, look at it. It says the next day, he actually left for Bar- with Barnabas to to Derby. So it was, it was a stunningly intense moment for him, one that he would never forget. Years later, um, Paul would write to the church in Corinth. He would write um, a, a statement. Part of it had to do with the fact that he was, and we're going to put this up because I want you to see it. This is from uh, 1 Corinthians, uh, it's the well, 11th, I mean, 2 Corinthians 11, verse 22, 23. And when, and when it says that he starts talking about this moment, and he, and he says, are they servants of Christ? He says, you know, how, now I know I sound like a madman. Now, now, okay, what was happening here, just to get it, people were challenging him as an apostle. They were saying that what he was teaching wasn't true. This wasn't, he wasn't really who he said he was, um, that he couldn't back it up with his credentials, et cetera, et cetera. So there was a lot of, a lot of uh, tension and Paul was really reluctant. If you read earlier in this chapter in Corinthians, he's really reluctant to do this. He says, in fact, he, goes, he even says, this may even seem foolish. I'm not even sure I should be doing it. That's why he says, are, are, are they servants of Christ? I know I might sound like a madman. I know this doesn't, may not make sense. It may not even be the sensible thing to do, but I need to point this out. They're challenging who I am. I'm going to tell you something about who I am. And that's when he says this. I know, he goes, I know I sound like I'm, I'm, I'm not all there, but I'm going to tell you something. I have served far more, some of his critics, 
I have worked harder. I've been, I've been put into prison more often. I've been whipped times, times without number. Um, and, and I've faced death again and again and again. And then he goes on to say five different times. And he, the, the, he said the Jewish leaders gave me 39 stripes, which is the maximum penalty under the law. He goes, three times I was beaten with rods. And then he says, and once I was stoned. I was beaten to the point of death with the rocks. That's this moment. His mind is going all the way back to Lystra. He can remember it. The only time it ever happened to me, but I remember it clear as day. He he, this is on his mind. He talks about how three times I wish you, but it was this, this is, see, you, by the way, this is why sometimes it's really helpful. You know, you read the Bible, and um, a lot of times things are referred to. It's really good to have a working knowledge of what actually they refer to. I'll give you another example. This one's in your handout. Look what it says here. I, I put this in because this is what he would write to Timothy, his son in the faith, his, his mentoree, his, the one that he had raised up and invested himself into. He says, Timothy, you have carefully followed my doctrine. You've been someone who's really observed me up close and personal. You've watched my life. You've watched how I've lived. You've watched my purpose, my faith, my long suffering. You've seen the way I've loved. You've watched the perseverance that I've tried to exhibit, the persecution and the afflictions, which, and then he goes back and refers to the things that we have been looking at in these past few weeks. Specifically, his mind drifts back. You remember what happened to me. You remember the, the things that happened to me when I was in Antioch and when I was in Iconium? And you, I, you, and you know about what happened to me in Lystra. That's, this is what he's talking about. What persecutions I endured. He, he remembers it vividly. It's on his mind. He may, even have, he may even have, when he looks into the rudimentary versions of a mirror that they have, he can maybe even see the scars that are left over from that moment. He, it was intense and he never forgot it. He would refer back to it. He said, and then he would say this, but out of all of them, the, the Lord, the Lord delivered me. And then he makes this statement. Yes, I tell you, it's a true thing that anyone who truly desires to live a life that's pleasing to God, a godly, it, desires to live godly in Christ Jesus, that you, he says, he makes a statement. He just says, you know, there are going to be times when you suffer persecution. And we see the profound truth that that Paul's getting at here, that there are times when living a life at some level is going to bring suffering, or at least it will not exclude us from difficult things. Now, I know when we read this, it's really hard for us to relate. Because the truth is, none of us, none of us have ever even, probably ever been physically beaten up or threatened because of our well, desire to talk about Jesus. Um, you know, I, was, I just got an, an, an e-letter from the church that we support. I mean, it's a school, really, but it's a church as well, a ministry in India. You know, we, we were connected to a couple of ministries in India. And India is a democracy, I, but they, uh, they have a school they named Cornerstone Bible School. They, they're, they're under a lot of pressure. Um, there's a pretty aggressive Hindu and Muslim culture there that is really putting them into difficult places and, and many of them are being physically beaten and some have even lost their lives. And they've been saying, please pray for us because we're really, this intensity is increasing. I think a lot of us are aware that it is 
completely illegal to follow Jesus in many places in the Middle East. Can't even really talk about You know what? Can't even have a Bible in some places. I was thinking about this Bible. This is something here. I, not even allowed to have it. So all that stuff doesn't really... Okay. I was reading about what was going on. So I... Somebody told me, oh, did you hear about what happened in North Korea? I said, you know, I, I really didn't hear. I, I know there's something going on there. I, I was reading a paper, November 15th, Wall Street Journal. The Bible is the most dangerous book on earth, George Bernard Shaw famously warned a century ago. Today's, today Shaw's words ring true literally for the 24 million people of North Korea. Possession of the Bible is a one-way ticket to the gulag or worse. And the worst came true this month for a handful of North Koreans who were caught with the Bible, which are outlawed by the communist regime. The Christians were among a group, they were, probably, they were the largest representation, it seems, of a group of 80 North Koreans who were executed by firing squad on Sunday, November 3rd, according to a daily report in the South Korean Daily, according to a report in the South Korean Daily, those put to death included, and he begins to list the different people who were included as well. The executions were public, and they took place in seven cities across the country, according to the report. In the port city of Wonsan, eight people were tied to a stake at a local stadium, had their heads covered with white sacks, and were shot with a machine gun. And this part I, I couldn't almost believe. 10,000 spectators, including children, were forced to witness the executions, and the families of the victim, victims were dispatched to the political prison camps, the paper also reported, in keeping with the regime's longstanding policy of punishing three generations of family for one member's transgression. Most inmates do not survive long in North Korea. Persecuting in their prison camps, persecuting Christians is a Kim family tradition, the article went on to say. North Korea's young dictator Kim Jong-un is the third generation of dictators to kill, torture, and imprison Koreans of faith, like his father, Kim Jong-il, and his grandfather, Kim Il-sung, he understood the threat that Christianity poses to his rule with its message of individual freedom. Christianity offers a potent alternative to the Kim family cult of personality. The article goes on to talk about it. I, I was going, I was going, I, these are people who, I'm, I, I go, I get, I, I, have, I get of this Bible, most of us have one of these, we, we have a Bible, we might have a few, more than a few, <laughs> some of them collecting dust, Think no, I think nothing of opening up anywhere at any time. I don't even have a clue what it costs some people to follow Jesus. I mean, I can't imagine it. This was the crime? I mean, we wa we're watching films and reading books about games. This is real. This is real. And I think about it, and I go, Lord, I've never, I've, I've, in my life, I, I don't think I know what it's like to suffer for you. I've grown up here, this has been my home, this is my land, this is the place, it's part of Western culture. I've just assumed a freedom to be able to worship you. I don't, because you know, I'm reading this, because I read what happens to Paul and I go, oh, that's, you know, it, it doesn't really relate to me, but it, it's happening. It's happening right now, and it's not like there's, and then we were talking about it last night, we were saying, what, you know, what can we do? There are certain organizations, Voice of Mar there's people trying to help persecuted uh, Christians all over the world, but you know, it's not like we're going to be able to parachute down into North Korea or something. I mean, it's like we're there. We, we, we look at each other and we go, oh, all we can do is pray for them. And it, it matters. And then another person said, that matters. 
And I go, you're right, it does. Even now, Lord, I pray for my brothers and sisters. I, I do not understand that suffering. I do not understand. What, I, we were, it, people were, last time we were talking about it, is what, you know, you, it falls back to that classic question. What would you do if someone said to you, deny your faith, deny Jesus right now, or you're gone? Or worse yet, your whole family's gone. See, this is stuff. What is like? No, it doesn't happen to us. That's not on our purview. We don't. That's nothing. That's nothing. We don't grapple with this. We're no one's throwing, No one's trying to kill us. And so this is. Oh, part of me is going. I don't. I, how do I relate to that? Well, I'll tell you. We may not be in a situation where to say we love Jesus is going to cost us something physically. But I'll tell you something right now. Um, the question is not are you are we willing to die for him for you and me mostly honestly. The question is are we willing to live for him. Because we, we live in a culture where it, it is increasingly countercultural to really live an authentically committed life as a follower of Jesus. And I'm not saying that to whine or sound like I'm trying, trying to guilt anybody into anything. I'm just being really honest. We're not suffering physically. No one, I don't know of anyone who's ha- that, having that happen to them. No one's saying, because you have a Bible, you're, you're, go- you're going to get killed. I'm not, that's not happening to me. But I'll tell you this, a lot of us are experiencing in different places, we're going to have situations where we get to decide, Lord, am I going to represent your heart? Am I going to talk about you? Um, I was talking to different people and saying, you know, you don't understand my work environment, Pastor. It's like, in my work environment, it's very intimidating to even mention that I'm, I'm even committed to Jesus in any way. In fact, honestly, I think in some ways uh, I could be belittled. There's other people who said to me, I might lose some of my friendships. You know, I, I have to be, I'm listening to people talking about it and saying, you know, I get that, but... Come on now, we, we cannot be, he was not ashamed of us. We cannot be ashamed of the Lord. We're not being, really the real challenge right now for, in our generation, in our world, in our culture, is to actually seek to live words that Jesus taught us, even when it goes against cultural sensibilities, to try to live in a way that honors him authentically and in a committed way. And as I was thinking about this, and I was thinking about, Lord, what you've asked a lot of us to do, which is just to not be ashamed of you, just and to, then to, and to then to try to challenge things in our own heart that would, would undermine the authenticity, authenticity or the integrity of what we say we believe. So that there's two things happening, Lord. What you're asking me is not necessarily to go and, and suffer for you, but you're asking us to, to be serious about following you and to, and to challenge things in our own heart and then to be open to talking about you, not in any arrogant way, not in any uh, in-your-face, um, um, insensitive, but, but at the same time, to not be ashamed of Jesus and to be saying, I do, I, I love him, I, I, he's a part of my life, and be able to talk about him, live out our life, challenge things in our own heart. That's what I'm talking about. Now, when we see this radical commitment that's evidenced by Paul, I'm just going to put a couple of things up, and these are real quick. They're a little wordy, but there's a, there's a reason for it. It got me thinking about how God does, brings us through things and deliverance and what it means to be um, even sometimes persecuted. I was looking at Paul and I was saying, you know, I, wanted, I want you to think about the diversity of his experiences and what they reveal about the different ways that God works through deliverance. As got, I was looking at this and I was saying, okay, he says God delivered me out of them all. I was trying to think, what did, okay, when he was at, I get that. When you were at Cyprus, I go, that makes sense to me. He has this great breakthrough, the Roman governor says, you're wonderful, there's fantastic, we re- I received this message of Jesus, they're leaving on a victorious note, I go, but then I, I guess, so I get deliverance there, I get what that, but when you go to Iconium and, and you get chased out of town, 
And then you go to, you know, you go, you go to that Antioch, get chased out of town, you go to Iconium, and they run you out of town with rocks flying at you. And then you go to Lystra and you get stoned and, and, and beaten to a point of death where they think you're dead. I go, how in the world? What are you talking about? How does that look like? Del that's deliverance? Is it, and he says, God, deliver me out of them all. But you know why he said that? Number two, because this is how he got, this is how he's thinking. Besides the fact that he was alive was the fact that deliverance for him meant that you actually go through it. it. It wasn't exemption. It had to do with God taking him through it. So when he says he got me, he, he went through it. And, he, and really, that's just a great, great principle because it has everything to do with the idea that it's, it's like a path similar to the path that, that uh, Jesus took. You know, because think about it. Paul doesn't want to get beat up. It wasn't like he was going, oh, I can't wait to be beat up. Um, I, I want to be hated. Uh, oh, I can't wait. I want to be totally misunderstood all the time. And then I want to be left for dead. Come on now. I mean, no matter what we say about him, you know, the fact of the matter is that he came to understand that working for Christ, in his case specifically, but in a broad sense, did not mean, and this is where it is important for you and me, following Jesus for Paul never meant problem-free living. And it wasn't like he said, hear me tell you the deal. Here's the deal. You, you decide to follow Jesus. And whatever you want, you get it all the time. Just ask him, right? So just, you just you say, you pray. it's like a genie. You know, you just rub it, and then all of a sudden, it does what you want. He never said that. What he said was, in every situation in life, and there'll be some bad ones. And he goes, I'm probably an extreme example of it. He goes, God will be with us, and he will take us through things. It's not exemption from trouble in a broken world. He says it's not even exemption from persecution at times. What he says is, though, God delivers. And now, he worked this out in another one of his letters. He introduced a concept. I asked him if they could put it up. It's in Philippians 4. Look what he says. He says, listen to me. Not that I've ever been truly in need, he says, because he says, I've learned how to be content with, and in his case, he goes, with whatever I have. I know how to live on almost nothing, or I know how to live on everything. I've learned the secret of living in every situation, whether it's with a full stomach or an empty one, whether it's with plenty or with little. You know why? I can do all things, he says, through Christ who strengthens me. Now, what he's getting at is this. Now, look, you know what he says there? I, look at the front, the top. Does he, he, he says, not that, you know, since the first day I followed Jesus, I was content. He didn't say that. He said, I have learned to be content. I have trained myself. My faith is nimble. It has a flexibility in it. He was saying is, it's extraordinarily adaptable and resilient. It's allowed me to walk through anything, not as a person detached in fatalism, unemotional, stoic, unfeeling, so that when I'm up, I feel nothing. When I'm down, I feel nothing. <laughs> that is not, detachment is not the goal of the Christ life. That is a very strong difference, by the way. It is not being detached, lost in nowhere. It is being fully engaged in real life, in the good and the bad of it, and learning how to live through it in redemptive ways. It has to do with learning to have a faith that is vibrant. Paul says, look, I've learned how to be genuinely joyful in, the, in a place of blessing. That's good. 
And I've learned, because you know one of the dangers, by the way, of the, of the blessings in life is that if we get too much success and it's too easy for us, we can forget God. We don't really need him. I can pay for certain things, get things done, sort of, you know, cover my real need because I can, I can use other things to buffer it that other places in the world can't do. So they're even more dependent and more open. And I think that's one of the reasons why I often experience more things that we might call miraculous because faith is raw and real. It has no options. On the other hand, one of the downsides, Paul says, is that there are times where you're going to be in real trouble in life and it's going to be very hard. He goes, in those places, he says, the key is to have an adaptable faith. A faith that is capable of being extraordinarily resilient so that when you are in the difficult place, and he was in more than a few, that you don't start saying, God, I give up on you. I don't believe in you. You're no good. You don't show up. This is how you treat your people who give their lives to you. Come on, where are you? He says, don't go down that road. Don't go that road. He goes, no, no, no. He says, look, I'm not, it's almost like he's saying, I'm not denying when I'm in a bad place. It's bad. This is the other thing. I I don't want to just say, oh, pretend it's good when everything around us, including our, we know it's not good. This is not good. It might be a relational thing. It might be something that we're having to walk through. Someone says to you, oh, be happy. You know, God's good. God is good. Yeah, I know God is good. But what I am feeling right now is really bad. And please, and please don't, don't say, you know, again, I know people mean, well, I've, I've said it all the time because he is good. What I mean by that is this, though. It's not to, to deny the bad. Paul never said that I, what I'm going through is a good thing. Like, I can't wait to, to, for this bad thing to happen to me, and I'm so great. He said, no. Now, he got to a point where he would say, even in these places, he did say this. Just, he said, I've actually got to a point, he says, where, and it was a technique he had, I believe, but, it believed, but he believed it. He said, I've actually come to see some of my suffering actually as a benefit to me because it's allowed me to more identify with Jesus who suffered on my behalf. And therefore, he says, I've come to see it as a great privilege. So he turns it around. That has caused me to rely even more on his grace and to be less proud. But it, it, that's a really challenging place to walk. Most of us don't get there. I don't. I'm more on the spot where this is really bad and I don't like it. <laughs> And, and, and so, Lord, help me to have a good attitude. I was talking to someone who I care very deep, deeply about, and they were talking to me, and I was hearing, and I said, how's it going? He said, ah, it's not going good. And they start talking, and all of a sudden, I was, he said, this is something, I said, I heard him say, is this about God? And I knew it was raw, and I get the Psalms are very raw and real. I said, you know, I said, don't, I said, don't say that. Don't say that. Don't say that about God. Well, he's God, he can t-. No, I said, don't say that because I go, I get what, I, I get it's real. I'm not trying to be, but you know what? There's, listen, there's power in your words. That's why there's power in praise. Because what we praise is enlarged in us. It's not like God needs to be told how holy, how holy he is so it'll change him. We are the ones that are changed in relation to the one that we praise. That's why Paul and Barnabas were adamantly saying, don't worship these things that aren't even real because it can't bring any life into them. Worship God. Because it changes you. Whatever you worship, you become like. If you worship something dead and animate, that's what you become. If you worship a person, you become like the person you idolize. Whether it's for their intellect, their beauty, or their power. But if you worship Jesus, <laughs> we become more like him. That's who I want to be like more. You see, when I, when I say to someone I love you, who I care about, especially what it does is it enhances my love. 
I say to you, I love you. My, my love is grown in those ways. So, oh, I don't want to be fake. I get that. But there's power in words. When, same thing when someone curses another human being. Or you speak towards someone you are called to love in a way that is demeaning. It diminishes that person, but it also diminishes you in your heart towards that person. Which is why God will call us on that every time. That what, he says, these things ought not to be so. And I know I'm a little off course here, but the fact of the matter is that the same fountain should not flow bitter and sweet water at the same time. No, let it not be among you, cursing and praising in the same person. Don't do it, he said. Seek that alignment. It's powerful truth. And so, I mean, when, for him, it's like he's saying, look, when I'm, I've learned to be content, I've learned to speak life, that, that got me back to where I was with the, the, the person I was talking to. said, you know, speak life, speak life, speak life. Don't, don't be careful about getting yourself dug so deeply into a hole out of, of negativity that you make God sort of like your enemy. Paul's saying, I've learned how to prosper and not forget him. I've learned how to suffer and not be mad at him. I'm very capable. I can find blessing anywhere. I mean, this is really good. (laughs) Right? Last thing I'll say is this. There will always be temptations to get us off course, okay? um, In the temptation of Christ, not the movie, the real temptation of Jesus, right? The real one. In that moment, he is confronted by the enemy. Satan himself says, If you will worship me, you can bypass all the suffering, all the shame. You can can bypass the cross, no pain, right? No humiliation. And Jesus says, no, you shall worship the Lord your God, him alone. It's this powerful moment where he will not bypass the suffering to get the power He'll walk into the cross. It's the beauty of the power of Christ. He takes the place. Knowing where he's going, he does it anyway. He follows through to the end. I was thinking about Barnabas and Paul in this moment. What was the appeal that was made to them? It was almost, it was unfairly insidious. Because what were they being said? We want to worship you as gods. You have the power. We want to have, we want to honor you. And it's almost like I'm thinking, wow, Paul and Barnabas, you know, they had to push people away because the people wanted to worship them like gods. It was almost like, you know, they, all you have to do is just go with it. Go with it and skip the stoning, right? Just go with it. Yeah, yeah. And Paul says, no, no, we are not. This is not about us. This is not about us. We are only and only ever will be imperfect messengers of the living God who has come to us in his son. It's a powerful message, potent message, and I'm reminded that there are going to be times where we're going to come into situations where we're going to be tempted to pull off track. And the Lord's going to call us just like, are you going to, are you going to stay? Are you going to stay on course, right? Don't take the easy way out. Don't take the easy way out. Don't take the convenient path. Don't cower back. Don't just fit in. Don't just kind of hide out. Don't, he's basically saying is, don't, don't take that course that appeals to yourself. Remember that there are times where it's going to, co- following Jesus may cost us something every now and then, even in a place where it almost costs nothing. But every now and then, when we're tempted to say nothing, and God wants us to say something, 
every now and then when we know something is wrong and we're being pressured and we know that certain things in the culture we work in require us to do this, but our conscience before the Lord is struggling. Every now and then when we're tempted to give up on something inside of our own heart and concede it and say, well, that's how I always will be because that's how my family was. And the Lord is saying, but that is not how I want you to be. You are a new beginning. See, these are the places he calls us to walk. Remember this, it cost him everything. He wants his people to give something. So when we, when we close, and we will in a moment here, and we'll pray, and we'll have our time of giving, but when we do it, and the song we close with, it has to do with this whole idea of, Lord, if there's anything that you're asking me to be courageous around, listen, please, whether it's at work, with my friends, or in my own life, in my own heart, if you're asking me to be courageous in certain places and not take the easy path, but take the, the, the way of the cross, then I pray that you would speak to me, strengthen my resolve, and give me the grace to follow through on the good things I know you are calling me to, to be courageous in my own way for you. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the great privilege of being able to imperfectly represent you. But I pray that we would care deeply about your ways because they are the ways of life. Um, there is a way that leads, it's a broad way, it leads to death, but there's a narrow way it leads to life. I pray that we would walk in it. I pray, Lord, that you would just continue to speak to us about what it means to be courageous, to, to push past certain things, whether those things are external um, and have to do with pressure of, of just wanting to conform and fit in and, and uh, swim with the crowd. And where there are times, Lord, where you're asking us to just walk to the beat of a slightly different drum and to do that with humility of spirit but honesty of heart. Uh, other times, Lord, you're calling us to just look inside of our own heart and to be courageous about what we're willing to deal with. It might show up in our relationship. Again, Lord, you know everything. I'm just so thankful. I want to be thankful, Lord, that you're amazingly gracious, but at the same time, you call us to places of growth and courage. And I pray that we would not pull back and be ashamed of you and, and not pull back and take the easy way. So I just pray for your blessing. Bless the closing song. Um, let it be like a word for us as we just sort of sit into it. Bless our time of giving. And it's a great week that we're heading into. I pray it as well. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. God.